words and lies. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as into spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. At that point, we'll be through part two, Rampart, of Pierce Brown's, I was going to say Iron Gold because we've been talking about Iron Gold today, Pierce Brown's Lightbringer. <laughs> This is Cross. I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. We're back on it. We, we've had some, some tumultuous scheduling times for the last several weeks, uh, but I, I think we're back on it. Sorry yeah, for I last mean, I'm no uh, longer lapse. traveling everywhere under the sun. So there's that. You have a ring on your finger now. So there's I that. I don't know if that came through, but I knocked it against the wood. Sounds substantial. It is a substantial ring. It's a very, <laughs> I held it in my hands. Whose ring did I drop? Did I drop mine. Kaylin's ring? No, you or dropped mine. Yours. Yeah, I dropped that one. Okay. I was just curious. I couldn't remember because I was, you know, only panicking in the moment. As I've said to many people who have asked me about the ceremony, I was like, I don't remember shit. I blacked out. Like, <laughs> I don't remember anything. <laughs> I frankly love the fact that you dropped it. It was hilarious. And it brought some yeah. levity. I did to turn the, it into a chip. Thing. Yeah. yeah. It it was great. Yeah. Despite it. Yeah. What I say? Catching you off guard. I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Said something like that. But. Mm-hmm. Kalen's gone back and yeah. said, like, I'm, I'm glad he dropped it. It was funny. So. It was. Yeah. There was. There were a couple of different. What was the other moment? Oh, I improved the. I improved like three things in the middle of that. All for levity in different moments. That. The, I guess there's a third reading joke because you guys were taking a while to get over to oh. <laughs> the Unity box. So I'd stab yep. that in. Yep, that's true. Yeah, there was one other one in the first half. I don't re- recall, but it was a fun time. Read a little Iron Gold reading. Of mm-hmm. course, we have to mention that on the show. Yeah. Otherwise, Neil Gaiman and Mark Twain. Those are the three little little bits, little excerpts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a literary event. Yeah. Well, you didn't give me any guidance, so I just went. I mean, you did give me guidance, to be fair. What you said is, it's yours. <laughs> yeah. Do what you want. You. I was like, okay. Knocked it out of the park. Seriously, man. It was great. Well, thanks. Well, that's why we're a week delayed here. In case anyone's wondering why the, the shift in schedule and everything like that, who didn't see anything on social media, Peter got married. So we should be back on schedule for the rest of this. This will shift our schedule out just a little bit. But basically, especially looking forward at the rest of the season and the way that we'll probably end this, expect Lightbringer or Red Rising related content through the end of December. And then whichever new series we start next will start in January. So mm-hmm. that will basically be our plan. Yeah, we tried to decide definitively what we wanted to do for the next one during the ride <sighs> to the wedding. And we came to a decision and then kind of went back on it. I so, kind of thought I- about it more and I'm like <laughs> I'm back I'm I'm back and forth so much. Anyone anyone in our Patreon will also tell you that I am so undecided still about whether to do the first law or the dark tower. So, yeah, I don't know. 
still working that out, but we'll see. Okay, with that, I, today is our fifth episode, and we'll be talking about chapters 30 through 36 of Pierce Brown's Lightbringer, rounding out part two of the book here. But before we go too much further, PJ, I'd love to hear about our featured cocktails. Question mark? What's your cocktail? What you drink it? I named Detente, which the name of a chapter in mm-hmm. this section, but also means the easing of tensions. So I thought it was a great name for a cocktail. Something booze forward, something strong, but delicious. Something to ease your tensions. I, I wanted to go maybe mm-hmm. something tiki, but just looking at what I had, I, I don't have a lot in the realm of rum right now. So I went with an alteration of the last word, which is a an equal parts cocktail with gin, green chartreuse, maraschino liqueur, and lime juice. And instead, I swapped out the maraschino for hibiscus liqueur and... Um, drop that ratio down a little bit. So it's one ounce of butterfly pea flower gin, one ounce of green chartreuse, three quarters of an ounce of hibiscus liqueur, and one ounce of lime juice all shaken. And it's this really, really nice evolving cocktail. It's It hits you right in the face with lime tartness that immediately mm-hmm. transfers into this herby note from the green chartreuse that lingers for a little while and just transforms right at the end to this floral note. I don't get much gin out of it, but we're playing with some pretty bold flavors. And I'm sure I could do some more editing to it and make that gin come through a little bit more. But yeah, I'm feeling really good about this cocktail. Nice. That sounds tasty. What are What are you chasing it with? Chasing that, the local brewery in Buffalo, Minnesota, Hayes Public House, recently, this weekend, celebrated their 10th anniversary, and they did a bottle release of an English-style old ale aged in bourbon barrels. So I got a bottle of that and cracked into that for the episode. Awesome. I love that. I'm very excited for them to need to like bottle some of that stuff because they did have some pretty good good beers when we went there yeah they're they're in a strange spot within the market in that their focus is sort of traditional style beers and that's not Mm -hmm. where where the market is the market's definitely in the sours and ipas and things like that and like russian imperial stouts and, and very modern beer styles whereas they're dealing with traditional stuff so it's it's a little bit of a harder sell but i love the beers that they do generally within those styles and this is no exception so cool yeah that's exciting yeah what about you crossland this is something that you have hinted at for a while for me and i have no idea what it is well i had this idea while i was going through and doing notes over the last couple of days there's this mention as virginia is grabbing a menu and there's basically this eating contest that references Ragnar called Ragnar's Vast Hunger. And so I went, wouldn't it be fun to do like a beer challenge cocktail thingy drink replacement for Ragnar's Vast Thirst? So what I have for you today, PJ, is a series of three 7% beers, all from Wicked Weed. I'm going to be drinking Half of at the top of every other chapter. Oh, no. And then nursing the rest of. <laughs> yep. So hardcore slamming half of the beer at the beginning of the chapter. This and is then drinking it throughout the rest. 
I think this is one of the few like true drinking format changes we've had to the show <laughs> since we've started. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna give it a we're gonna give it a try. We're gonna see how it goes. <laughs> You've turned the featured and, cocktail into a game. <laughs> well, I mean, it sounded it sounded like something Radgar would do. No, you know it what does. I mean? So I'm, I was like, I'm into this it. Is... I I love it. This is not admonishment. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's gonna be it's gonna be a little bit different. I've got one here. I've got one next to me in like a little cooler thing, and then the other one is lurking in the fridge for when I need to get it at chapter thirty six. So or thirty five. Yeah, chapter thirty five. So. Yeah, I figured that this is also kind of a good week and a good style to do this in. They are 12 ounces, not 16 ounces, so I'm not going to be absolutely on the floor here. But if it's also too little, then we know that we have to up the game a little bit. <laughs> so, we might. Because then it's not really Ragnar's vast thirst. So we'll have to, we'll have to, we might have to dial this in. We might have to uh, challenge each other to it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do, how do you feel about of, a case race episode? <laughs> <laughs> or or like you a, how abysmal that would be <laughs> or a bag like slap the bag what what what's oh it called a boxcar race i think yeah yeah boxcar races yeah you could you could definitely do that oh my god it would be we would <laughs> to do like a gamified version of that i feel like we'd have to do it as a short form. like probably not a main feed episode i'm in maybe i'm in maybe Maybe this is what we do with Zeph. Y'all buy a bag of wine. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you're going to hear a couple of cracks of cans throughout this episode, and I will obviously announce cheers and then proceed to down half of the beer. I'll let you know one is a just a standard IPA at 7.1%. One is a, or 7.3%, sorry, that's what I'm starting with. Then there is a hazy that is a 7.1. And I'm qualifying the third one, which is also an IPA, but it's a different varietal. I think they call it Freak or Freak of Nature or something like that. And that one is a 6.9. So it's it's not quite 7%, but it's it right. It averages to over 7. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that's that's the game plan here. Do you like how little this wine glass looks in my hand? Yeah, PJ, it <laughs> looks pathetic. It's very sad. Sad little wine glass. <laughs> but, PJ, I'd love to hear about what you think about this week's reading. This was a change of pace, for sure. But still exciting. Um, I feel like it's been a while since we've gotten this mixture of perspectives all in one session right like the the parts i expected to kind of be a little bit more segmented but to get darrow and mustang and lysander all present um pretty heavily pretty equally i'd say virginia maybe more than the other two uh because she bridges both but um I I guess I'm rambling at that point. (laughs) I don't know. It it felt like a more of an emotional, an emotionally static or emotionally dynamic episode as opposed to a physically dynamic episode. Okay. 
I, I can dig that as far as explanation goes. I, I feel like I drew this comparison, I would almost say prematurely because we hadn't rounded it out. But I think last week I mentioned that we I, I immediately draw comparisons to the Battle of Bladon, where we really drill into two perspectives. Sure, we maybe start with more occasionally like interlace other things. But if you think about Dark Age, we don't really see. I mean, a we aren't introduced in, into Virginia's perspective until much later in general. So we like don't even know that that's going to be a POV that's fully added. Then we go to the we get a little bit of an update from Ephraim and Lyria variously. Then we really go deep into the Battle of Ladon, which is just Lysander and Darrow for like a solid, I want to say like 15 chapters. And similarly, this basically starts out by like reminding us, hey, Lyria's here. And then we proceed into about 18, 19 chapters of just Virginia and Lysander for the battle over Phobos. Is it that many chapters? So, yeah, a lot of them are really short, though. So, like, remember, there's kind of like the race of perspectives where it's like in the audiobook, it's like six minutes, but it's like a couple of pages. So it is it is definitely a lot. But part two on the whole is 12 to 30, 24 chapters. So which makes for basically three episodes. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Originally. I had covered this in two, and then at the very last minute, when we had started the very first section, I went, absolutely not, and broke this into three. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm so glad I did, because we went longer on some of these than I definitely expected us to. Mm -hmm. Well, Um, whose fault Yeah, I I immediately. Yeah, mine, probably, most likely. It was mostly notes. I just went overboard. Sometimes Mm, sometimes you go overboard. I, I, yeah. I'm unexpected in what I latch on to. I understand. I admit. Hard, hard to predict, which is also <laughs> fun. So it's a, it's a little bit of our, our joy here. All right. So with that, we get to start our chapters. And I have to start speaking. <laughs> Cheers. Chapter 30, Lysander, the edge of glory. Oh, my God. It's going to be so much harder than I thought. All right. We should have gotten you a beer um, bong for this. A beer bong? Can you imagine Ragnar Just to do with it a my beer bong? I mean, that would be the way that he would do it. Also, I think you said this in the Devil's Cup. You made mention of, like, what are you going to do? Like, drink a bunch of beer out of an ice cream bucket or something? And I went, that would be what Ragnar does. You're actually correct. <laughs> like, that is a way better. Like, everybody's got mugs and he's, idea. like, taped to... A- Taped a handle onto an ice cream bucket or something. <laughs> <Ice cream> bucket, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or it's like the skull of some particularly nasty obsidian <laughs> he's drinking out of. That seems that's more Alia or a gold helmet, maybe. Mm, yeah, I could see that. Any any of those, yeah. But the ice cream bucket in particular speaks speaks to me. It also gives new context to the the Howler chant: "Eat the bucket or get the box." Finish the bucket. Finish the bucket or get the box. Yeah. yeah. Oh God, that can't be. We're not, I'm not putting that evil out into the world. <laughs> oh, <laughs> the you already have not a bucket of beer. Well, I no. mean, it's, I'm I'm doing it to myself. So we open this week with the arrival of Diomedes <laughs> having stormed his way through the Legion and pointing out that the victory here on the moon is inevitable, but will likely continue to be a grind. As Lysander says, he's on the edge of glory. There's also this little metaphor of the apple tucked in here as it follows us from scene to scene. Is there any notable historical context to the term edge of glory, or is it just 
catchy. It it sounds like one of those things, and I, I genuinely don't know, and it's one of those things that's kind of difficult to look up, but I would imagine that it's likely Shakespearean in root. I would be genuinely shocked if it isn't, because it reads like a Shakespearean term. Yeah, but it's impossible to find anything on the phrase Edge of Glory because it is one of Lady Gaga's like top ten songs. So hmm, and that maybe, puts it in maybe, like the top hundred songs of the world ever. Maybe in this world. I mean, this world, our world exists within the Red Rising universe. Maybe Lady Gaga is a renowned philosopher at that point. I mean, there is that. You know, I didn't consider that The Edge of Glory could be a Lady Gaga reference. Because <laughs> realistic, you're not... The, I, worse ideas, worse ideas have came out of this podcast. Out of my mouth. <laughs> out of my mouth for sure <laughs> no but I, I think in particular it it has definitely been used historically and giving credit to shakespeare for something is more than likely like shakespeare was very talented at you know obviously inventing turn of phrases but capturing what other people were saying and then putting it down more or less so not Stealing always a genius stuff. but a very talented thief <laughs> i'm glad we were on the same page for that yeah. But I, I love the apple here, and it reminds me of that scene with Virginia that's in Golden Sun? Morning Star? Ah, Golden Sun, I think, because... I think it is Golden Sun. Morning, Morning Star, she was with uh, Octavia basically the whole time. And, yeah. And dating yeah, yeah. Cassius. Right? Morning Star, she wasn't dating Cassius. Golden when was Sun, she dating Cassius? Cassius? I thought she was dating Cassius Golden while she Sun. was with Octavia. Nope, Golden Sun, at the mm. beginning of Golden Sun, which she was with Octavia at the beginning of Golden Sun. But I think it's okay. when people aren't listening to her, right? That she's just kind of chomping on the apple dramatically in the room. She walks in like, late morning star? and then puts her boots up on the... Her dad's still yep, around. Kicks it up. Like, that's, yeah, it's Nero. Yeah. It's Nero, right? She's intimidating yeah. Nero and... Yeah. Yeah, throwing her weight around like the petulant yes, child in his eyes that she is. Which is great and also like very Virginia and also almost reads a little Victra in a way now. But I mean, as she was younger, it's, mm -hmm. it's different. So, right. Yeah. I just really appreciate that idea. And it immediately reminds me of Diomedes and the way that he is kind of chewing on the apple and then discards it later. And it feels sort of like buying into something and then throwing it away in a very different way than what Virginia's felt like. Yeah. And it's also like. Virginia's was a show of like unimportance or or mm -hmm. not unimportance, but a show of her being bored by the situation or something or not not enrapturing her in a, in any particular mm -hmm. way. Whereas this is actually a straight up metaphor for the planet or for the moon. Yeah. Right. And throwing it away was after more information <laughs> came to them. Yes, it's very true. We'll we'll definitely get to the throwing it away bit. But there is it is for the moon. It's for Lysander. It's for a lot of things. You know, as, as far as that goes. I do want to bring up that Diomedes, as he's walking through things and and like they're having this conversation about whether or not they're going to break through. He does simply say if, and there's. Uh, this, uh, this is going to come off so stupid, uh, if if you can imagine. And like citing something based on a single word doesn't feel incredibly relevant ever. But 
while not obviously a Kipling reference, I immediately thought of the first couple of lines of the Kipling poem, If, of which is probably, I would imagine it's got to be in the top 25 most like publicly known poems ever. I don't know if you've ever read If or heard If. I've heard Kipling. I've I've read some Kipling. Yeah. So I've I mean, probably Kipling, read it, but Jungle Book, it doesn't, yeah. doesn't come um, off the top of my head as... If, oh, yeah. if is great. It's a great poem. It's cited by... I mean, we read Cold Iron, Iron, Cold Iron, which is Kipling. But it's it's in the... The lyrics are used in... God. It's the... One of the brand new songs that I can't think of at the moment. Anyway, cited widely in a variety of things, arguably one of the more impactful poems, also because it's very simple, very approachable, begs the question of like what manhood and humanity are and like how you can be a person. But the first couple of lines remind me of this exact situation, which is the only reason that I feel like it's relevant and why it potentially could be some form of reference to quote Kipling here from the poem. If you keep your head when all about you are losing theirs, blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you make allowance for their doubting too and that is basically what diomedes is doing in this moment walking away with that apple still in hand yeah that seems pretty relevant i would say um you're right in maybe we're guilty of reading too far into things sometimes uh this one is definitely too far (laughs) but i i wouldn't be surprised by a comment by Pierce Brown saying, yeah, I, I added a subtle nod to this Kipling poem in the way that Diomedes reacts. Like, I wouldn't be surprised by it. I don't necessarily want to put that much. Of all of the things, it, but... I would put much less stock. Yeah, <laughs> in, exactly. In this one versus even like the iron cold iron rant that we went on that one time based on a couple of lines that mirrored that poem. Yeah, we went and like read the whole fucking thing, didn't we? Well, yeah, because it, it felt very necessary, <laughs> especially because <laughs> it metaphorically tied in with the whole situation. But yeah, in particular, if you haven't read it, definitely do you know widely to the audience. It's like four stanzas, five stanzas. I almost put in the entire first stanza, but then I was like, well, really, just the first lines are incredibly irrelevant. Yeah, but. Such is the nature nature of things. So we cut away from this conversation with Diomedes to Lysander seeing millions of tiny battles unfold over the surface of the moon. We see Victra meeting with Cicero's vanguard, but it turns out that that was a trap as Victra's armor armor was not where Victra was. Victra awaited Ajax and his party of golds that were on his way to kill her. And then subsequently, he was beheaded in, in my opinion, one of the most brutal executions of the series thus far yeah i i mean i got called out for it in our patreon server for doubting victor's prowess especially up against ajax last episode yeah sorry i i shouldn't have doubted our lady here it was pretty pretty amazing to witness from that drone footage like cool to see the perspective of lysander zooming in on the footage and the horror of what Victra wrought upon Ajax in this moment. Pretty amazing. She's slamming his fists on his chest, like, and he's just like erupting in blood as he's already been decapitated. And this is just like a victory chant. A victory. This asshole. Victory. <laughs> <laughs> 
And it's it's especially tough given that like last week we had drawn all the comparisons, especially with everyone citing that he was a better warrior than Aja was, right? Yeah. This just goes to show. That's it, why it I wasn't got into the sort of comparisons. I mean, it was yeah. it was purely out of like I am dreading when they have to clash and mm-hmm. like all the all the accolades and and credit that Ajax has been given didn't point towards a success in hand-to-hand one-on-one combat with anybody. Yeah, he was expecting to have a lot more time to like get to her and was not anticipating what was happening. And then you throw Thraxa into the mix and that just leads to mm-hmm. really, really bad, you know, mix. Sure, Aja, you know, is is unstoppable, very hard to beat, but three, four teens <laughs> took her down, early 20-somethings. Yeah, with training from, from her master, specifically. <laughs> like, I mean, just one of them had the training, but, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good point. Regardless, it was it was very fascinating to see this unfold. And also for me, I don't know how you felt about it, but in my first read through, I was so pissed. I was so like not pissed at at Pierce by any stretch because characters will die at any moment. But man, I really liked the person that Ajax was becoming. And that just speaks to sort of the brutal brutality of real war. That is the picture that's painted for Lysander, too. Yeah, it would have made for a much more complicated internal dynamic within the family, if you want to call it that, of Atalantia and Lysander and Ajax and Atlas. Mm-hmm. Like the the whole father-son dynamic and how that was potentially evolving could have been really, really fun to unfold. And it's sad to see that evaporate. Yeah, yeah. And the way that he had turned against Atalantia. And so like all of those different variables are now just all of a sudden pulled off the table. But that's the reality of war. We're we're lucky that we didn't lose anyone else. I should say we're lucky from Lysander's perspective. This win is also a huge fucking win for Victra. And like, I also want to celebrate it. But it's hard to also not for me, at the very least, consider the POV and and what that means. Mm hmm. And it doesn't have to be just from Lysander's perspective, but from the reader's perspective of the story that that can be told with these characters. Um, He's a piece of shit. I'm not upset about him being dead, but I I do mourn the loss of that potential story arc. You know, it's awful. I'm way more upset about the death of Ajax than I ever was about Tactus dying. I know yeah. that's my hot that's like my hot take on our podcast in general, but like this in particular, the the potential here, because that was the path that he was actually on for longer than two minutes, you know, feels like there was more more to unfurl. And it wasn't just just with Darrow, it was with everything else too. So Yeah. It, it's a yeah. Yep. No, say in people, our say people, in our fans good graces by not talking about tactics. No, good move. Don't do it. People, I mean, I, I guess it's par for the course with a sort of perceived heel turn. Not heel turn, but the opposite of a heel turn. What would that be? Uh, or is it a heel turn? I mean, it's from Atalantia's perspective, it's a heel turn. Yeah. So, I mean, but between him and Tactus, they both like go through this really profound change in perspective 
and then very, very quickly die. Yeah. Tact is a lot faster. Um, yeah, he, he didn't get any time to live in that <laughs> to prove it. Right. But ultimately, there's also something that's more satisfying about Victor killing as well here, as opposed to Lauren's justice that's extracted. So, yeah, I, I just yeah. I, I love the howling, the, oh. the roaring. It it still shakes me. I remember hitting this part. And again, this was just shortly before I had came back and was listening to it on my way to Kansas. So I hit this in the airplane on my way to Kansas. And I remember being so shook because I could not imagine Ajax dying. I also fell asleep on the airplane because it was super early and I missed like five chapters in, in this section because they blitz. So I fell asleep for like a quick 10, 15 minute nap on the plane and I had to rewind. But I remember hitting this and then being like, <gasps> what? <laughs> What do you mean Ajax is dead? And then I hop back and like re re listen to it and I was like, oh my God, I'm mm-hmm. so much pain. But and then I was like, oh, I'm so mad at no, I'm not mad at Victor. Victor did the fucking right thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, for sure. I'm just absolutely. Yeah. Because I brought it up and because I hadn't thought about this, but I'm wondering if we want to dig maybe too deep again into word choice and decisions on Pierce's part. The decision to refer to it as a roar instead of a howl with all Mm. the like general like wolf and howling and howlers sort of ingrained within the Republic and Darrow and this war to make it still an animalistic noise descriptor, but detached from the sort of howler moniker do you think that's intentional in any way or do you think it's is it lysander's perspective do you think it's victra sort of just being in the moment and not thinking about the betterment of the society but thinking about herself like any any sort of thoughts there i just think it's feral and primal right like it's just it's the reaction right like a howl would like indicate to me versus a roar as you're citing a howl would indicate to me that like this is for the howlers in some regard. And that's not what this is. This is for the fact that she has to have this war, the fact that she's here for this battle, the like wear and tear of everything, the risk of her life in this moment and this sort of victory over a previously unconquerable and very difficult to kill foe between the pair of them. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that's where that ties up. Okay. Yeah, in my head at the very least. I just wanted to turn the tables and ask you some questions for for. No, that's a good, I think that's a good question. (laughs) I really like that. So we end with Diomedes parting and saying, the edge of glory cuts both ways. Condolences. He was gifted. Lysander then cries about losing his friend and brother and all of this for just a third of fucking Phobos. Just Brooklyn. Just Brooklyn. Ajax died for Brooklyn. Basically. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty funny. That comment is really fitting for Diomedes, I think. Mm -hmm. Stern and hard, but when someone deserves compliments, he gives them. And clearly Ajax did. Like, 
he was formidable. Yeah. He was uh, exemplary to a certain degree in a way that we don't want to exemplify as not fascists, but <laughs> exemplary in right. the way that yeah. they exemplify. Yeah, I mean, there's okay. So this this gets into interestingly rocky territory, but there's there's something about someone actually standing up for their morals and meaning it, even if it's the worst thing. Like that conviction, especially in fiction, is something that can be cheered for. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, not saying that it's good by any stretch, or that like the meta of it all is like a good thing to support, but I think that's one of the interesting differences to me, even between like Ajax and Lysander, is Lysander has elements of like wishy-washiness or like going against his own word, which is why I think up until this point, we'll talk about this later. Diomedes has been, has had like a tough time buying in it's because he thinks that he's mostly just bluster. He doesn't mean it he even says so very much later. So yeah, I think that there is something about Ajax and that Diomedes sees that and respects that because it is, he was himself the entire time. For sure. True to him. Yeah. Yeah, not not saying that like the tenets of being an iron gold are a good thing, but there's much more iron gold in Ajax than there was so far in Lysander from Diomedes perspective, I would imagine. Yes and no, I, I think there's there's a certain amount of leadership qualities that I think Diomedes recognizes within Lysander that would be uh, a requirement of that iron gold moniker that wasn't highlighted by Ajax. Like Ajax was the sort of military arm. Like Ajax and Lysander together, I feel like produced the iron gold that they sort of deify. I, I get that. I get that. So I can understand that there's the the sort of philosophical nature. But I, I think my only counter argument there is that he sees it because he was embodying that yeah. live. Right. And so because he physically sees that, that gives him sort of a different weight there. OK. Yeah. But yeah, I, I also agree with that. And again, not condoning fascists <laughs> on the podcast. For the record. All right. With that, we go to chapter 31, which is an off beer chapter. I don't have to chuck. Dear God. (laughs) (laughs) Virginia Dayton. So we get a really short chapter here in which Virginia reflects on the strategy and the cost of war. She compares her victory here and thinks about Darrow in the moment. She wanders among the dying and gives them all her time. Very similar to Darrow in Morningstar, back when he did the similar thing of wandering through everyone after the Battle of Tinos, everything that was going on there. Actually, wasn't it also the Battle of Phobos? It was Phobos. It was right after Phobos. So there's your direct parallel. Fuck me. I didn't realize that until right now. But she wishes that she could treat them all, but they don't have the resources to do so, and that they've been at this for an astonishing two weeks at this point, which is kind of (sighs) wild. Like, big time skip, but makes sense. And I, I think that if you really think about it, that time skip where nothing has happened is it, it builds necessity for the following chapter. It builds, it, mm-hmm. it, it reinforces the idea that this is just going to be a grind. 
and right. there's there's Which is an what inevitable says. end. Yeah. But it will be a grind. But yeah, this this hospital ward depiction was horrifying. And that understanding that none of these people are outside of the realm of saving. Like we could save literally any of them, just not all of them at once. It's just a throughput issue. It's just a bandwidth issue. And it, it's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Difficult. I was curious on this first read. Can you tell I've been thinking a lot about the name of this chapter, naming my cocktail after it? You did I mean, have two weeks with this set of chapters, which That's is unusual. True. That's yeah. true. But yeah. even so, on the first read, I was curious if the, the name of the chapter was ironic or not. I kind of And I, I don't think, think it is. That it's, I think it's sincere. I, I think that it's mostly sincere until the very end, actually. I think the end is what kind of makes it ironic in a way, because it's like this is kind of an escalation. We got back our heroes. We came back with the head of someone and a, and a hostage, right? Yeah. So that's where I think like it's but that is going to Get, ease tensions in the long run. That's but, what like, I mean. Is that's, it, it's it's an easing of the stress and an easing of yeah. it, it's not it's not an easing of wartime tensions. It's between mm-hmm. nations, but it is an easing of tensions internally for Virginia and um, yeah. for the leadership of the republic to have a break in a, in a way. Yes. Yeah. In the end, I think it's reflective of that, especially over the next couple of chapters. And I think that's why this is given that title, because this is sort of the denouement of the battle, right, is what we get for the rest of this. And so we're we're on our way out of of the battle for Phobos at this point. And that's kind of what this signals, because now she has chips to trade, which she didn't before. Yes. Yeah. There's a little paragraph in here that I really love that Virginia paint that paints Virginia as this incredible humanist. She says, I weep after my visits. I am jealous of their faith. Jealous they cannot see the struggle from my seat. Thankful for it, too, because I know the odds better than the young men and women who have given their youth, their lives for our cause. I pity them for their faith in my husband as much as I cherish and admire their conviction. Golds are a faithless breed founded in the gross sobriety of atheism. But the rest of the colors are willing to believe. I am really glad that you included this quote because it stuck with me from from the first reading. And like th- this is probably one of the most read sections in the last several books for me because we had two weeks with it. And mm-hmm. I had a lot of yeah. five hour More drives to, True. To, to do so. Virginia has always been this logical, analytical person that we've come to know. Um, and we, we've, we I think on this podcast, fairly regularly admired the way that she handles different situations in that logical, analytical sort of state of mind. But this passage makes her out to be more of a philosopher in a way. Um, in a very like I, I'm I'm trying to be positive in that descriptor, her her ability to break down faith and break down um, the differences of the colors in their upbringings and what that means, and their relationships to worship and to belief 
in general, despite it not being like Darrow is not an actual God, Mm -hmm. but he is being deified, which I think is the second time I've used that term this episode for some reason. And even though like that, that faithfulness or the, the ability to be, the ability to believe extends beyond their actual theologies and into this belief in Darrow. Just, I, I, I like the way she's able to break it down. Yeah. I, I think to your point, she articulates it very well. Right. And it's this, it's the sort of cynicism I think is one of the big things for me that I really kind of take away is that golds, especially as we've actually been able to see them operating on their own for the most part are cynics that are out for themselves. They don't actually mostly lean in and believe in someone outside of what they're going to get out of it. It's actually, I don't want to like just keep coming back to Ajax, but that's one of the few reasons that I really liked Ajax over the course of the last couple of weeks is he showed faith in Lysander in the same way that a lot of people show faith in Darrow. And so there was sort of an interesting parallel there in my head, especially as we kind of approach this quote from a bunch of different angles. Strangely, not to the same degree, but similarly, I see that within Julia somehow. Like, see, but I still wonder. I still uh, wonder, we can, too. We'll definitely talk I, about I'm, that. I'm not convinced yeah. on Julia, but We've, there, there is I, I feel like a she is difference herself, somehow. But, yeah. Yeah, it, it's I, not. I don't, I don't, I, I don't think she's straight so up out on for a herself. Table. I, I see her as out for her family, as yeah. opposed to for the good of the society. Like she, she's able right. to kind of break a break away from the her contemporaries. In a way. Yeah, I but I, I think that she's still just putting chits down on the betting table, right? Like it's, she's just dropping, yeah. you know, things versus like. Faith is a step beyond that, where it's like, this is this is something that I w- am willing to die for and commit everything to because I believe that it is the proper thing to do. Yeah. So that's that's, that's kind of my like breakdown differential. Still, nonetheless, it makes it a fascinating quote and one that I've sat on a lot and thought about a lot in relation to the characters. Holy shit, I have to finish this beer already. So Victra and Thraxa arrive to close out the chapter as she waltzes in with Cicero Alvotum, having failed to retreat, as noted way before in the in the previous week's readings, as well as Ajax Algrimus's rotting head. Mm, what a fucking set of trophies, man. What a good set of trophies. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, great we, we've talked about how conflicted we are about the death of Ajax, but... For Victor to have his head, man, I'm, I'm oh, yeah. into it. I, I love that Victor <laughs> killed Ajax. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm super <laughs> for that. We've mentioned this many a time. Yes. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So for the people that cannot see what's going on in the uh, video feed, which is literally everybody until we uh, start doing video <laughs> podcasts, which are, are we going to do that? We've talked about it. Maybe. I don't know. I probably need to. As mentioned, I probably need to move and get a different spot that's more conducive for that. I need so. to. I need to get rid of this fucking wallpaper before your I... space is much more amenable than mine. Yeah. But yeah, either way. But for everybody, that's not me. Crossland just chugged the rest of his beer. I didn't see him take another sip of it after the first half chug because he has to chug the next half of the the next beer right now. 
Cheers. I don't know if you heard that, but it popped. They heard it. Sometimes I cut it out, but I'm not going to right now. <sighs> this is the haze. This is the Perny haze is what they call this beer. Thank you, Wicked Weed, for not sponsoring this episode, but for providing with me method by which to torture myself. We could Ugh. reach out to Wicked Weed and see if they'll sponsor it. Maybe. This is I mean, <laughs> not that's a good endorsement in the moment. <laughs> reaching out to Budweiser, Anheuser-Busch, <laughs> basically. Is it? Yeah. Oh, right. Wicked Weed got purchased, didn't it? I forgot yeah. about that. Yeah. But by by so all accounts, in Asheville, but. by all accounts, they have maintained their quality at least mostly yeah. since Same their with, like, buyout. Stone, so. right? Who, who owns Stone? Stone is owned by New Belgium. Oh, they're ah. owned by Sapporo. Got it. Yep. So Sapporo owns New Belgium, who and and Stone under the same umbrella. Okay. Okay, cool. Cool. Sorry. All right. Sorry for that. <laughs> Chapter 32, Virginia Parlay. Please parlay me so that I don't have to drink. Or, ow, he says, sipping again. All right. <laughs> so, so Lysander in Virginia. Just so you know, yep. from the perspective of the listener, Crossland just drank half the beer and then immediately complained about it and sipped the beer again. Correct. But that was for we, the first sip that you took off air. That we was, took, that we, was the we took a break for him to go potty because he's piss boy. <laughs> oh, <laughs> God damn it! You had to out. Me. <laughs> All right. Lysander <laughs> and Virginia meet up to shake hands and embrace the old laws of the pirates' code. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. okay, well, not really, but <laughs> there is a modicum of social comportment between the two as they meet to discuss the ongoing war and embrace old traditions. Lysander quickly turns into holding things he possesses from Darrow over him as though he's just elucidating that he has these things that makes him equal or superior to Darrow in front of his wife and like childhood idol in some ways. Yeah. Look at all these toys I found is, is very much <laughs> the, the vibe that Lysander is giving off here he continues to confound me in this and like for the most part in almost all situations he seems to have a really good understanding of what's going on around him and the notion of honor and what it means to be a leader and what it means to be a warrior even to a certain degree like he seems to have a good grasp on it but when it comes to proving his own worthiness and like his own accolades and what he's actually accomplished things really fall apart in in a strange way and i I don't understand how that that is constantly a sore spot for his character lack of confidence i mean i i don't know how if there's any other way it's just like he's had everything taken from him and so he feels like stealing and presenting other people's toys as you said is the or his trophies are his like I don't know. I'm just imagining like baby Lysander leaning back in a crib, rocking back and forth, thumb in the mouth with a little Darrow razor on one edge, one hand and the morning star as like a little puff toy. Or as a mobile. Yeah. Oh, as his mobile. There you go. There you go. Yep. Mm -hmm. That's perfect. Yeah, Mm. that's exactly what I imagine in this moment. Just, oh, man. What a what a child in a lot of ways. And he kind of 
brings that to this in a way um, that, you know, doesn't elicit a lot of empathy or sympathy from Virginia, which is why I love the speech that she opens to right after talking about Darrow's Blade, Darrow's Warship, Warship, and this third of the moon that he owns. And she says, fine, buy the balls then. And he says, I beg your pardon. She says, you don't have me by the throat. You have me by the balls. You can wrench and twist and it will cause me terrible agony. But in the end of the day, they are just balls. And I am a woman, so I will go on enduring without my balls. And I will pester you with death by a billion cuts. Except it won't be me. I'm not a captain who goes down with his ship. I'm a sovereign who will delegate to people more suited for tunnels and darkness and the horrors that happen there. It's a good key. It's so good. It's so good. And then they get into like, it just goes worse and further. It's <laughs> oh. Have me by the balls, except for I'm a woman. I don't give a shit. <laughs> yeah. I do like that delineation of by the throat versus by the balls. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like I've heard something similar before, but I can't recall what from. But sure. It was a it was a fun comparison. Oh. Actually, I think that there is a similar you just awoken this in me, and so my brain is not fully functioning. It is in Game of Thrones. Tyrion has a similar speech. Not not identical by any means, but he's saying, Well, I have you by the balls, I believe, or he is had by the balls. And then Okay. There's there's some context there. Or maybe it's it's, it's definitely Game of Thrones. It's Varys. I think it's Varys. Because he's like, but I have no balls. Right. Or, or like Tyrion observes that he has no balls and he's like, correct. So none of that matters. Okay. Something in that realm. Yeah. Yeah, that could yeah. be what I'm thinking of. This is done better. It's got it. In that case. This is done better. <laughs> and it's more fun, you know, perspective. They're not identical speeches by any stretch, but you know, comparatively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Still gets into the the is it Return of the King? I can't remember. The no man can defeat me. I am a woman kind of. That is Return of the King. Yep. Yeah. This one's better because it's self-referenced. That one mm-hmm. falls flat because it's not the point. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. Yeah. 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 I can understand. Sure. <laughs> I just i really appreciate this and it's like her flexing and then almost immediately afterwards after exchanging that threat there is even more about like pegasus legion are you going to send out more of darrow's best troops and it's like no we'll send rat legion and their vengeance you wouldn't remember but the tunnels i'm sure they would remember and uh you know they they feel the sense of vengeance because of what ajax has done impaling their brothers and sisters from heliopolis to tyche and Lysander sighs and says, "That is age. That was Ajax." And Virginia replies, that, that with was the coldest Atlas. reply of the entire." Or sorry, Atlas. Sorry, yeah. excuse me. You're right. She replies with one of, "I'm blaming the like beer that I just absolutely no, slammed, no. and then the other half beer." Totally. Here we are. Yep. But she replies with, "Poor man gets blamed for everything." And, <laughs> you know, like there's a combination of things going on here. A is Atlas just everywhere? <laughs> is he maybe just blamed for a lot of stuff because he does create or is evocative of like this sense of overarching fear he yeah (laughs) (laughs) wait just stop there i mean he yeah (laughs) 
he gets blamed for a lot, but he also does a lot. Like, it's hard to believe. We know how much he g- accomplishes him and the Gorgon Legion. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a legion, right? I think. I think that's the right term for it. Yeah. They're the. Are they 13? I think they're 13. Drakio 13 or the Gorgons. Yeah. Yeah. Regardless, like, they do a lot of shit. They get a lot done. Yeah. They're very efficient. Almost too efficient to the point where it's mythical in the amount of shit that they've done. (laughs) (laughs) Which is what Virginia is saying, you know, like it's, there's a lot. Yeah. But I do want to mention, obviously, the way that this parlay actually goes, of course, um, Lysander extends an offer of temporary peace and passage. Everyone allowed off of Phobos that's inside of the army is in exchange for keeping the dockyards intact. In addition to the exchange of prisoners between the pair of them, uh, as well as a couple of odds and ends, including the end of Ajax's neck connected to his head. Um, Mustang also uses this moment to leverage to find out who he's been giving the moon to. And of course, we find out that it's going to Apollonius. That also unravels his plan of taking down Atalantio, in which he breaks down in a moment of honesty. Breaks down is a little bit much, but he's willing to be open and honest about his plan to her and what his move is there to take his place as leader of the society. Remnant. Is it remnant at this point? The Republic refers to them as the society remnant. Yeah. But yeah. It's the society. Whichever whichever way you want to look at it. Yeah. First pass on this. I, re- I remember my first listen through of this section. I was so frustrated and upset by the lopsidedness of this offer, this trade offer, I guess. There's a lot to deal with, obviously, and it, it feels like Lysander is coming out with so much, you know? Mm. But it, upon further review and, and thought and reading it again and again and again and thinking about Virginia and by extension, the Republic's priorities... I, I feel like this is a fairly fair trade. All of their leadership and all of the people that are on Phobos get out alive, which they wouldn't. They they understand that this is a grind that will wear them down and they will eventually lose at cost to the enemy, of course. But these numbers and and these key people are better spent waging a war on mars i don't know i like this back and forth and pulling at their sort of personalities as youths and their their Mm -hmm. understanding of each other when they were growing up because even though mustang was an adult she was already a peerless guard at this point when she was interacting with lysander regularly playing chess with him she was still young she was still Mm-hmm. Uh, immature in comparison to where she's at now. So it, it's it's nice to see this retrospective of them interacting now, but referring to their younger selves. Yeah, getting a sense of something that we didn't fully see on screen, but we, we had like one-off lines of, right? Like Lysander is by no stretch a new character in the series. He's been here since Golden Sun. 
but there has only been tangential references because in Darrow's mind, he was never the focus. And so to bring more of that in, again, we've talked about the way that a TV series would be framed. We might see a little bit more of Lysander earlier on in a TV series to build him up as this villain over time. But we, or deuteragonist as time, but at the very least, we would definitely get term? components. Can hmm? you break that term down for me? Uh, deuteragonist is really just a perspective in which you inhabit. So like not necessarily bad or good. I think he is the an- he is an antagonist in the end, but ultimately. I mean, it's it's a mixed bag mm-hmm. for a while. Right. Yeah. OK. So a, a deuteragonist is a person second in importance to a protagonist as well. It doesn't portray any sort of moral equivalence. It's it's more it, meant it to. It doesn't imply any sort of morality. Yes, but a protagonist generally does imply the moral compass with which you're viewing a story. Not that you have to agree with it, but at the very least, the compass with which you're presented. So, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry for derailing that line of thought. No, it's it's good. It's good. But yeah, so I, I think that in a series, this would be a great example of where either you do like something like a cold open with them playing chess and then you cut to the battlefield and you see what's been wrought right over the course of an episode, maybe, or the fallout of the last episode, which is maybe just the whole battle. So that's what I see. Yeah. So <laughs> by God, this chapter ends with outraged commanders, but the return of Cavax, of whom I was convinced in my read was actually dead. I I don't think I believed he was dead yet, but I didn't think he'd be coming back. Mm. I thought he would die. I figured at this point he was still alive, but doomed based on the failed abduction of Apollonius. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I we knew that he was being held based on our conversations with Apollonius, and I don't think he's one to lie about it. So, right. I think it was Apollonius talking about. It was. He, yeah. he said I broke his back. Yeah. What not. Yeah. So I, I had no reason to believe that he was dead, but I didn't believe that he'd be recovered after they failed to secure a high profile trade. Got it. I, I thought we'd yeah. get like a hollow cam of his execution. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was expecting too up until this point. It was like, okay, all right. Well, we we gained back one of our major players and commanders, especially in the way that the text had like basic. He had written himself off in a big way in the text, of which I think was clever subversion, where it's like, here's all the things you need for Sophocles, and like, you know, like, yeah, when and if Cavax dies he probably won't hand off Sophocles in the same way. Like that would not be the way to shock us with a death or to, you know, stir something in readers. So, yeah, I think it'll be a heart attack in his sleep or something. I mean, I hope, but I assume less of Darrow or, or like of Darrow of, something uh, that Lysander I'm constantly him. afraid of because of my size. I like there there are horror stories of people getting infections on their feet that they can't feel because their feet are too far away from their heart and they like don't have the best feeling there. And I like being super tall, I don't have great circulation in my feet and hands and people that are like 
inordinately tall die from infections in their feet because they don't realize you had one of those. Yeah. Yeah, I I've I've dealt with this not in the dire circumstances, but yeah. yeah. But Cavax is a big dude. I could see something like that happening. <laughs> but, Striking him unwittingly yeah, in the dark. Just, just a Oh, if only he wasn't such a big fucking dude. You could have noticed that his <laughs> foot was hemorrhaging. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Totally get it. Yeah. Yeah. I I understand. I understand. I just feel like he's going to... I mean, I hope he doesn't, but there's also... Cavax could be that like long-term figure that re-embodies Lorne, where he outlives all of his children. And I'm kind of afraid of that in the same regard. So, I mean, he's he's most of the way there already. He's got a couple of unnamed daughters that I think okay. are still floating around. The only named one is Th- Thraxa, right? I think the other one is technically named. And now that you're pulling this pulling this on me, I definitely have to check. But I'm pulling it on you. What? <laughs> I mean, I know a lot, but this is not one of those things that I was. Yes. No. Zana, of whom we actually Zana. meet in Iron Gold. Yep. Zana. Yeah, and there is another unnamed daughter as yet. Okay. Um, she's in Morningstar and Iron Gold. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah. She'd be like 44 at this point. Mm-hmm. So not entirely is, similar, but I. What, that's he's similar. knocking on 70s door, probably. I want to say he's knocking on like 80 or 90, but that is 70. Okay. 60. 50. He's older for sure. Yeah. Lauren was like 110. You God, we we went through this dance once in Morningstar. I want to say that specifically Octavia was 111 and that I think Lauren was 107 or something okay. like that. But like over it's, 100. it's very God, it's actually it's the so other way formidable. around. I just looked it up. I looked it up. It's the other way around. It's 107 and 111. Octavia is the younger one. Man, to be capable with a razor at to be capable eleven decades. <laughs> yeah. To be capable eleven I mean, decades. All right. So Lorne and Bilbo are kins. I, I I mean I don't feel like yeah, all right, we can we can do that. I was thinking what's his name? Oh, the guy in Lord of the Rings of whom dances the dance and he's the guy he's like meant to be the opposite of he's not in the movies. Bombadil. Thank you, Tom Bombadil. Yeah, I said Brown and I was like, well, we we aren't going to talk about Brown at all for a while. But yeah, Tom Bombadil. How fun would it have been to turn the movie into a musical? You could do it if it was all from Bombadil's <laughs> perspective. He'd just be singing the whole time. Right. All right. Let's proceed with chapter 33. Lysander, the master of spoils. The awards Lysander doles out to everyone is fascinating to me. I mean, he collects his cape from a red, I believe, named Olin or Olin, and then also gives out a special award to Pytha, a tattoo for her head that is like the highest honor that can be awarded in addition to a number of other awards to folks that have fought in this battle to claim the moon. Shortly thereafter, we also have an anointing of a peerless scarred variety of sorts. They're not normal peerless, but a new scar issued by the blood of Selenius and equipping them with new 
diamond and gem encrusted razors. What did you make of this sort of doling out to the warriors and sort of what what happened here within the beginning of this chapter? I mean, the the ceremony itself moves Lysander in my own head as uh, someone wishing for power into somebody actively holding power, if that makes sense. Like, I, mm -hmm. I know nothing actually really changed, but for whatever reason, I, I see this legitimizing him after the presentation of these awards for some reason. Yeah, I mean... He, he dubs them the new shepherds, right? With like all yeah. caps. So it feels like you're not all caps, but, you know, capital letters. So it feels yeah. like that's the sort of new form of peerless scarred here, potentially giving them potentially weight to their names if they live through all of this. For sure. Weight to their names. I, I mean, yeah. that scar, the additional scar, is that something that was historical or is that new for Lysander? It's new. Okay. This is Lysander. Pulling it, pulling it fast. That's one. fucked, man. <laughs> yeah. That's really fucking cool, but really terrifying at the same time. Yeah, it, you know, it gives, hmm, I don't love putting this out into the ether, but <coughs> cut, cut, cut. This can come out. It was mostly for the cough that was aggressive, but it would very much be like, go from a Nazi flag to a slightly different Nazi flag, you know, or something in that realm. I mean, yeah, that this flag includes a Nazi flag, but it's technically a different flag. But it's a new one. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's more different. We stand for similar but different things. Mm. That's very much what this feels like. I mean, I don't think That's, it's the, I don't think it's the right comparison to make, but it reminds me of the Australian flag, which includes the Union Jack. Oh, way better. Cut, cut, cut everything I said. PJ, <laughs> what was the difference that you, you really appreciated? What would it make you think of? Or uh, of? The Australian flag. Versus? Technically includes the Union Jack. Yeah. So it's it's evocative of and directly like is, is stealing. This is so funny. It's like stealing valor from <laughs> the British flag. I hope all of our Australian friends still like us. Hi, Pira. Hi, Pira. <laughs> I'm not trying to make your country seem like an illegitimate copy of a fascist state. But that's the comparison that I'm making right now. Here we are. Now we're here. <laughs> that checks out. But yeah, I, I like I really like that comparison. I think we've talked about this before, but this little section of ceremony ends with a per aspera ad astra roar. And the fact that this has become the war chant for the other side, and it always has been, fascinates me within the fandom and everything else that like this is a thing that's been grasped onto, considering it's always been. Yeah, I, I really want to see it. somebody raging against per aspera ad astra on a T-shirt. Because... <laughs> It feels like the same. Yeah, <laughs> you're you're totally right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, God, it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that happens, of course, as they obliterate the Cero, the the Stero. You can tell that the two beer chug thing is absolutely hitting me. 
the destruction of Darrow's statue that's happening here mm-hmm. is, is what leads, of course, to that chant as the various skulls and emblems that Virginia pointed out before float into the void as they are the past. And we are here to forge a new future that is both without the previous conqueror that we're overcoming and absent of the prior rights of all those that died before. Rights being R-I-T-E-S. Yeah, yeah. R-I-G-H-T-S. I mean, any, you would think, and so, <laughs> somehow, somehow the southern United States has uh, evaded Oh, God. <laughs> but you would think that any conquering body should destroy the monuments of those that they conquered. Like, that, that, that makes sense. I mean, that's what Sherman did. That's what all should I, I don't understand any sort of situation where the monuments of the pre- previous regime remain, unless it's a very, very peaceful transfer of power. I, yeah, I think there's strictly historical value in leaving some monuments up and there. But this is like a propaganda monument, which is right. a little bit different than like, you know, other things. Yeah, and um, I, I guess I'd argue yeah. that so are confederate soldier like confederate leadership oh, most like, of those are post the civil war i know anyways, it's which is fucked. why it's, it's really insane. fucked. yeah it's insane uh, it, yeah that's I, why yeah that's yeah. why i innately disagree like i i agree with you no it's, it's not a, it's not a valid comparison fact because yeah, they cropped right, that's, up that's what i was trying to yeah 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 but in com- like in in whole i think it is valid with the ceremony that is leading up to the destruction of this this figurehead darrow it really draws the line and draws a sort of distinction between the society and the the republic and their sort of pomp and circumstance um and i guess i'm i'm tying in the entirety of the the award ceremony that they're conducting i know we're supposed to we're specifically talking about Darrow going down, and it's sad to see our boy crumble, but it's hard to separate that from the rest of this ceremony and not recognize that there's a very, very tangible difference between the way the Republic conducts itself and the way the society does. Yeah, it, it really puts into perspective the sort of squabbling that... Virginia was willing to put up with from the Vox Populi in the last book, right? Like it really kind of contextualizes the differences here between putting up with a vocal group that is like anti or like fighting against you versus an actual physical erasure of the changes and progress that you've made. So we move from the handing out of trophies to the real handing out of trophies as we go to a conversation with Juliet at the party afterwards. She's far more liberal than I would have thought with her tastes, which shows that early Cassius definitely took more after her than his father and what we got to know of him from afar. But she does pose some interesting questions on her thoughts on her son. Do you think that she's still pulling for him, her very last child? I think she has to be. I mean, just think about her reaction as it was reported of the loss of Julian and, and the, Mm -hmm. 
the bloodlust for Darrow, even though she totally, she is a peerless guard. She totally, totally, totally understood why her son was there. She understood mm-hmm. that her son was not a physical threat and would be cult. And frankly, shouldn't have understandably taken a personal vendetta towards the person that killed him. But she's mama bear, you know, like mm-hmm. she has a drive for preservation of the family. And I think it goes well beyond the preservation of the society. And okay. I don't think she'd outright condemn or damn the society for the sake of seeing her children survive, but I, I, I think she'll still root for them. Okay. Yeah. If that makes sense. Like it's, it's, it's a half measure. I think like, I, I don't think it's a total, like I'm on Cassius's side because he's family, but I, I think she's able to sort of blur the line between society and Cassius support. Yeah, she could. It's I, I see it as like she would be. I think you've done a great job articulating the ideals of Julia. I would just, I think, take it a step further that I think that she has a slightly more extreme reaction than that. But like by a degree of like 10 percent. Right. Like I think. Would she decry all of society? No. For Cassius. But would she perhaps collect the head of someone of whom wronged Cassius? Probably. Yeah, Even exactly. if it's against the society's rules and standards. Right. So it, it's not a, it's not a full measure. It's not a. No. An alliance made, but it is like her morals are not um, totally in line with the society's morals. Absolutely. That that checks out with me. I wanted to pick your brain on your thoughts on Apple State after the battle, keeping all of his wounds that Virginia Holiday and the Lions inflicted on him and sort of the rationale as he's sitting there. And also the sort of state and the the comment that Lysander makes about the Southern Road being the way not the way to his heart all the time through Palace, the the Lancer from the Bolognas. I mean, what'd you what'd you make of the entirety of Apple's presentation after this? I would say loss on his part. Apple has always been described as beautiful and Mm. exemplary in almost every way. Musical. But I've never seen him as vain. Mm -hmm. You know, like his his beauty has been secondary or it, it hasn't been his personal focus. He he doesn't seem to be a vain person. Strangely, it seems like he should be based on the way that he carries himself. But mm-hmm. he has a lot going for him and beauty and just physicality is one of those or a couple of those things. But it's not like what he ties his 
importance to. So the fact that he allows those Mars to be um, on display reinforces that feeling for me in that. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to throw in here specifically that vein is more encompassing than just beauty, but we often associate it immediately with that. Like vanity is encompassing of appearance abilities or like self-worth a lot of ways. And that's like excessively high. But to, to your point, I don't think he is never, he may have been thought of as like a beautificious, beautificious vain person of whom idolizes the way that he looks and like is this sort of proud bull that stands over everyone as as that sort of sense of beauty. But that's never this, I think, proves that he doesn't equate that with his worth so much as he does his abilities and what he does in the world. He is vain. He's just not vain for his own reflection in the mirror. Right. Exactly. Purely that. It's it's not. It just happened that he was pretty. <laughs> right. It, it wasn't he would, he what he was striving no for. Yeah. He would yeah. be this way no matter yeah. what. And it's just icing that he's also beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Could be could be a self-fulfilling prophecy as well that like if he wasn't, yeah. it wouldn't be. But I think that it is it is icing. I'm like sure he benefited from being pretty, but. That was never his primary objective was to maintain his beauty. Very true. Very true. Yeah, there's there's a lot there. I, I appreciate that sentiment, which is interesting because it it mirrors Lysander in an interesting way of where they, again, are not the same because the reason that Lysander wore the scar was very different than the reason that Apple did for the time that he did. Another fun. I mean, yes and no. You can draw comparisons too, though. Lysander was wearing it to like be like I fought and survived, Darrow. Wherein Apple wore it not as like a mark of any sort of pride or survival or anything like that, but almost as a mark of shame for a second. Like the way that he feels here, everyone else is feeling and riding the waves of victory. Apollonius feels defeated. Mm-hmm. that's fair that's a good point yeah which is you know interesting strange a little different but i think that in particular that comparison is very different as far as their approach to the scar goes i want to bring up lysander's obsession with Oln or Olin or whatever his name is and the faith that they have in him i find that really fascinating that the gammas have bought into lysander we talked about faith and the way that people have bought in earlier especially as it pertains to virginia's quote but it brings to a head kind of a core question that i think the second series has really started to dial in on and excuse me for a moment we're going to get a bit heady as we talk again about morningstar and lightbringer as concepts but Darrow was this morning star that broke the society and gave people hope. Now, Lysander is the light bringer, providing hope to those that wish for the old world or that still thrived in that and are fighting to preserve their way of life from before. And what's fascinating to me, I think, about the story as it started to break out in this book and Dark Age, by and large, is that they are both each other's sides Lucifer. The other side's devil 
And each appropriately from those perspectives is a savior and a devil for a large portion of the population. I find this to be really, really enticing fiction because we get to see the ways in which you can be a hero and a villain no matter what people think. Yeah. And all right. Whether it's right or wrong. We've talked about, especially last week, I think, maybe maybe two or last week, last episode, two weeks, two weeks ago or two episodes ago, three yeah. weeks ago, Dark Star Academy. And and sort of the satanic iconography, and that extends clearly into Morningstar and Lightbringer, both being like terms for Lucifer historically. And I love this breakdown. I love this sort of reasoning for that usage, and. I, I think you know that I'm very green in the terms of or in the realm of literature, but it feels fairly unique to me at least to have such ingrained and and such in-depth perspectives of opposing views. And yes, Darrow is obviously going to be the prevailing protagonist point of view for this story, backed up by all of the other perspectives other than Lysander. But giving Lysander and Darrow equal page time, like page count, probably fairly, like, I'm guessing it's pretty equal. Mm-hmm. Like it, it makes this sort of moral quandary, and and this comparison and con- contrasting nature of the two of their plights and uh, campaigns so much more real and and focused, and it, it's it's hard to like totally entirely vilify one over the other because we get the background and we get the reasoning and rationale for each of their decision-making processes. I don't know. It's, I know, I know it's not unique, I'm sure, but it's unique in what I've experienced in my very limited (laughs) literary time. Yeah. I mean, it's as mentioned, I I think that that's a great comparison. And I think that like, as far as moral comparisons go, this story is more clean cut than most might be. But I do think that the morality on display from two different perspectives is still miraculous in its presentation and the way that he has very cleverly gone about mirroring the way that we think about these two characters and the way that they interact with the world and the way that the world interacts with them in particular. Why do people group around these, these champions of causes and what causes them to be that? And despite everything, you know, we should be able to see similarities between Lysander and Darrow and the way that people respect them and, and hate them. Obviously there are flaws um, on either side, but that's, 
it, the purpose to me really comes into light here, I think, more than more than it had beforehand. It very clearly felt like there was a comparison, but now it feels like in particular, of course, in the titular book, we finally have this sort of display of the differences in their valor, their honor and what they strive for. So finally, we come to the rub of the toys and the spoils that are being given away here. Apple gets the moon Phobos because Julia is going to receive Mars. As a part of that, he wants her rapid support so that they can begin this war on Mars in three days, as quickly as they possibly can, as far as a turnaround goes, to maintain this momentum. <sighs> it was kind of fun to see Julia come to the realization that, oh, Apollonius is getting Phobos because I'm getting Mars. Like, seeing that click with her was was a lot of fun to see. Mm-hmm. And the two family bit, right? Like there's always two families. Exactly. Exactly. And being in Lysander's perspective is, I don't know, it's weird. It's weird. It's great. Of course it's It's fun, but it it is great. It it is a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Getting to see so often, I feel like there are, you know, counts in forums and on the internet in general, where it's like, wow, I wish I could be in the bad guy's head. And I, I also think that it's very fun that a lot of people are like, fuck, I hate this bad guy's head all the time in all the forums and all of the internet, because it's literally like, this is what you asked for. You just, (laughs) you knew that you weren't going to like it, but here you are. Now you're mad. (laughs) I I don't know what to tell you. You would have asked for this if I didn't give it to you. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Which is its own thing. After that, we move up to the next chat with Horatia and Dido, the former continuing her effort to build this consortium around Lysander, while Dido continues to press the needs of the Rim. Helios, not present in the moment, seems to really be a deciding factor in the commitment of the Rim here long term. Lysander opens up and reveals his absolute intentions with the Rim and the society on the whole. He does actually want to strive for more and convinces Dido's entourage that without Atalantia, all this could and will come to pass. There's so many, so many good lines in here. I'm just curious as to what you think about in this moment as they confide in each other. I mean, it's it's always, for me, it's always been fun to interact with the Rim and the representatives yeah. of the Rim because I, I feel like they're the more diehard representatives of the honor focused way of life that Lysander is trying to exemplify and allowing Lysander to directly interact with them shows comparisons of course but also shows how much farther like how much closer to them Lysander is than the rest of the society golds it's he he truly seems to be the bridging agent in a lot of ways yeah and and he's also genuinely pushing for this reform right like with dido in the moment he's like mm-hmm. i want martian helium feeding this i want you to not need for demeter's garter to be the only sole source of all of your food and resources I want the reforms to begin here. I want pinks to have dignity. I want all of these different things, less violence, more law. These are the things that would fix if I had the morning chair. 
Dido finally leans back and says, When I first met you, I thought you were a conniving little shit with too much ambition for his own good. You're all those things, but all this isn't just for your own good, is it? And Lysander replies, Only in my weaker moments. I love, and, I love this response from Lysander. Like, I feel, I feel like we're teetering on the edge of Lysander's sympathy in the way that we talk, or at least I am. <laughs> but it's sure it's not. I, I'm not. I'm not trying to sympathize with his decision making, but I, in his perspective, and in comparison to all of the people that he is in direct competition with, he seems to be righteous and truthful to the <clears throat> the lofty and elevated ideals that he tries to uphold. He has a fairly well-documented and explicit history of self-hatred, which seems to come from a deep understanding of his own flaws and shortcomings and his situation and, and so much more. But he, he does seem genuine in his pursuit of what he understands to be the betterment of the solar system. It's not a totally selfless pursuit. Like there, there are no. yeah. selfish benefits that he has, but he does not seem to be wholly motivated by his selfish motivations. Which is, yeah, in comparison to everybody else, admirable. I don't know. I I think I think it does make him admirable among a steam or a sea of steaming shit piles. Right. You know what I mean? Like it is. You're you're looking at the glowing bag that is actually clipped shut with a stapler and has those staples clipping the paper bag over itself, so the scent isn't wafting out. But if I throw it on the doorstep and let it on fire, it's still shit. You know what I mean? But you're right. It does make him admirable. I'm so, I didn't mean to reduce your entire point in that moment. No, no, I, it's just putting it into context of like it's it's tough to extract him, but it does make him feel like an approachable person. And especially because he is willing to own up to his own internal faults or at the very least, he's so aware of them. It, it makes him much more compelling than most other golds are Mm -hmm. or would be. And like the fact that he doesn't seem to be hiding behind this sense of, or this shield of moral superiority, but he genuinely seems to hold these views. Like, Mm -hmm. It's not just a talking. He's not wielding them. He believes them. Right. And they're, they're not mutually exclusive from his selfish conquests, but they, they are true at the same Mm -hmm. time. So we learn a little about Diomedes in this exchange here and we'll proceed to him in but a moment, but the fact that he's Lysander's champion in private after what's occurred on Phobos that had to mean the world to him when Dido admitted that out loud. Yeah, especially after their 
previous, like most recent interactions where mm-hmm. Diomedes comes off as cold and almost hostile towards Lysander. It's nice to nice to see that's not necessarily indicative of his actual opinions. Yeah, it's not the whole thing. It's a part of it, but it's not all of it. Speaking of Diomedes, ever the stoic, he is sitting in the garden looking at the flowers and is particularly repulsed by the vanquished foe, a sword-shaped flower that he calls a bad name for a mediocre flower in a meager garden. Before he follows up asking a genuinely heartfelt question after Ajax and what happened to him. You motherfucker besmirching <laughs> the status of Victra's garden. Dickhead. Fuck you. I don't like you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I I think it's less that he's upset at it being Victra's garden and more there 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 may be two there are a couple of ways to approach this but for me in my head I think it's got more to do with how poorly named this flower is as something of beauty shouldn't be equated with battle and so he just like immediately is like I want to appreciate this for something that isn't what I see all the time yeah and that that's the way that I read it. There's the other side of it too, where it's like, oh, Victor would be so crazy as to plant this vanquished foe plant in her garden, and I don't see that so much. I can, but I don't. In my first to... read through, I it almost seemed like Lysander improvised the name. I also felt that as well. It doesn't feel like a real flower name, right. but it like how would Diomedes know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I'm not. I'm not positive on that. I don't disagree with you. I think there's a good chance that he improvised the name. Yeah. I could believe yeah. it. And bad name. Because he pauses for a moment and then says it. And that's like, that's that's a little bit different. Exactly. And there's the, the question of, is he is he anticipating the feelings of Diomedes or is he making a play? I think, I think it's kind of both. Yeah. If it is an yeah. improvised name, I think it's both. I think it's trying to trying That's to draw a connection. My favorite. That's my favorite take because then his response a bad name for a mediocre flower in a meager garden makes even more sense. It does. Because it, it adds Phobos that layer is of shit. like Yeah. This whole thing is you know, or not shit, a wash. but Phobos ain't shit, I guess. Yeah. Right. Phobos is a big deal. But yeah, a Ugh. a bad name for a mediocre flower is just a perfect insult. I think to whip back at Lysander too, without like, and it's not know, a vanquishment. They didn't vanquish yeah. their foe. Yeah. Yeah. I, I more thought on it. I think it's improvised and I think it is Diomedes making commentary on the way that this has played out in a condemnation of the parlay. Maybe. Yeah. Or or in addition, in, in addition to, I would say that he also just thinks that it's a bad, bad flower that is also a commentary, right? Like on all kinds of things. It can be both. Like, a, how dare you think it's defeated? It can be. It's so many things. It's great. I love this. I love this simple little line that's about this stupid flower that Diomedes hates that Lysander probably lied about. Like, it's so silly in how much there is here to this dumb flower. And I love it. But yeah, I. In particular, just the way that he actually 
you know, has feelings for and consoles Lysander in this moment over the death of Ajax and him being a good warrior as best as a man from the rim can. You know, it's not like he's like melting down and crying and being really upset for him, but he's like he was a genuinely great soldier and kind of remarks upon that tough. So Lysander begins to unpack his very honest plan before it's revealed that he's been poisoned by the lament where he starts to feel not just physical pain, but a racking emotional pain and sorrow as well. He feels broken. He feels lost in an abyss. And Lysander feels the want to die. I think this leaves the question, who do you think poisoned him? At this point, uh, I totally, totally believed it was Julia. She's the only one that had spent considerable amount of time like directly in contact with him. And I've, I haven't had a great grasp on her motivations even now but tying it back to Atalantia like they seem to in the next couple chapters makes a lot of sense too I'm not entirely convinced that Julia is I'm not I'm not convinced that Julia's hands are clean but I do believe that Atalantia is at the the center of this conspiracy there was some horrifying imagery (laughs) described yeah the the aftermath of the you're bleeding comment and like nope it's your eyes like you're crying blood right now (laughs) and yeah you don't think about it but your eyes don't have nerves and I have thought about this a lot because I have been stabbed in the eye inadvertently. And uh, my eye has been actively bleeding. And I didn't feel a thing. Like, it didn't hurt at all. So, yeah, that was uh, terrifying. Yeah, definitely a whole thing to unpack there. And I do think that we'll get to get into this a little bit more in the final Lysander chapter of the week, which is also the final chapter to talk about Medusa's lament. But how, I mean, Medusa, obviously eyeballs, eyes, bleeding from the eyes being the sign, turning you to stone, right? Is Medusa's whole gaze. So Medusa's lament being that you cry yourself into a pit in which you are no more useful than stone. Like what a fucking terrible poison. That's fucked, man. Yeah. That's such a bad poison. Yeah. Fuck. Ugh. Brutal. We'll get to we'll get to talk about that a little bit more in the final chapter of this week, of which we're approaching. But before that, chapter 34. Virginia, remember Earth. Chug bitch. God damn it. Are these 12 ounce or 16 ounce cans? They look like 12s. 12s. I said 12s. Right. You might have. I didn't. Sorry. I didn't think. No, don't apologize. <sighs> I was just in the middle of. It's a lot of beer. Like, I'm going to answer this for some reason. It's 36, which is, you know, within reason. I was like, man, if I had four of these, I'd do four. Um, but at the same time, I was like, absolutely not. Three beers in the span of the time that we record in is probably yeah. enough. You're good. Because we're we're at two hours at this point, and nice I didn't start thirst. until about 30 minutes in. So, right. It's an hour and a half. Anyway, and I have to be competent for my part of the show sometimes. 
All right. So I, I love the open here of the chapter and the way that Virginia acknowledges life and the impact that she and the rising have wrought despite the loss through the simple snagging of a menu. Ragnar's vast hunger. I mean, we could we could do Ragnar's vast hunger, right? Like, no could, doubt. I mean, we're both way too stubborn <laughs> to, to yeah. keep up on it, especially if we're both doing it at the same time and in right. view of each other. Like we will. Our competitive nature will prevail and we will both finish, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that I'm innately the most competitive person, but there are a handful of people of whom can challenge me to things. And I'll be like, oh, yeah, fuck. Yeah, I'm not backing down from that. It's like you, my brother, my other brother, <laughs> maybe my dad. I don't know. There, there are a handful of people. Bill. Yeah. 10 people otherwise not very competitive but this absolutely fuck yeah we're doing it yeah could not could not be stopped would order the vast hunger would would get it for free would puke (laughs) when i'm done yep but i would do it you know that reminds me of the quickest puking rally of my entire life which was also at your wedding cheers you did do that yeah i did well to clarify it was very fast. It was like I took a swig, immediately went, nope, that is not going to go well, and went over to the side, puked for five seconds, cleared cleared the gut, sat on the stairs to make sure it wasn't going to happen anymore, and then came back within five minutes at most. I wasn't there for any of it, so mm. I believe you. Well, it was something like that. I was looking for clarity because I don't have the full answer of that moment because obviously it all happened in a rush. But you guys spent a lot more time on the dance floor than Kaylin and I did. This this is fair. This is fair. And we didn't we it's not that we didn't anticipate that we also lost immediately in the beer pong tournament. Anyway, back to the chapter. Taro and Mustang finally get to speak, exchanging a fun story of their youth and their recovery after the iron rain that night with bacon and eggs way back when back when Browns were the theme of the show. What a fun chapter, though, that they have here. They share information. and We really get to see and interact with Darrow from another allied perspective directly for the first time ever in this entire series. Seriously, up until now, only enemies have been looking at and talking to Darrow since he ran away in Iron Gold all that time ago. It has only ever been Darrow's perspective. I I would have fought you on this. And then I remembered that Virginia wasn't around until dark age. And I like, I would have sworn to you up and down. If you had asked me that, uh, we would, that we had a Virginia like perspective before Wolfgar, like just in my head, totally believe that to be the truth. Yeah. Nope. We didn't. Isn't this crazy, though? Like, this is legitimately the first time. It's insane. Yeah. They've interacted technically via very long distance wires and other things like that. Like, we've seen Mm. messages passed back and forth. Um, Actually, I don't think that there was a message from Darrow passed to Virginia, but just the other way around. So this is truly the first time that we get to see anyone interact with Darrow. Of course, it's his wife. Yeah. Um, Of course, it's great. It is great. No, no qualms. In the beginning of this section where she's looking at the face of her husband, I totally, mm-hmm. totally thought, and I don't know if it was intentional or not, but I totally thought she was talking about the statue coming down initially. And 
it just it's a happy surprise to have Darrow talk back. Yeah, yeah. Just to kind of get that. Um, I don't know. It's it's just great. It's you know, especially the callback to bacon and eggs being sort of this memory between the mm-hmm. two of them too is like this. Oh, like it's just great. The feels it great. Is great. So in in this moment as well, Virginia has her own war stories, her conflicts that she's seen firsthand. And finally, I think has a deeper empathy for Darrow, having experienced the same kind of things and understands. And now they both understand the reality of the situation that they're facing holistically from each other's perspectives, I think. And while Mars needs its savior, Darrow isn't the savior right now. And in this moment, Virginia's Penelope must turn Odysseus away so that he can become what he needs to out there in the stars. And that is tough. What a fucking punch to the gut, man. <laughs> like, is, this is devastating. I know it makes sense based on the situation and the context and what's going on, but fucking damn it. Just let them, let them be reunited. Let Pax spend time with his dad. Like, God damn it. it. It's this like near miss of like fingertips always constantly with the pair of them. Mm-hmm. It's painful. Yeah. And let Pax spend time with his dad, man. What what Darrow wouldn't give. And we'll we'll talk about that at the end of Winds of Duty, because it particularly strikes it. The iron strikes hot at the end of that chapter um, and in a very painful way that, again, I remember listening to on the plane because I finished this section when I was on an airplane and had a hard time not crying when that chapter wound itself down. But mm-hmm. so Darrow's final speech here to her for the chapter really softens my heart and pains me so deeply as we think about the way that these characters interact. Reminds me of why I love Darrow as a character so much. And for the first time in a long time, I think Darrow has always been, you know, the commendable knight and the hero and the the person willing to sacrifice everything to win. But this is a reminder of who he was, I think, more deeply in the original trilogy than anything that we've gotten until this point. He says... You know what I told myself out there each time my mistakes compounded? I'd say, Darrow, next time you listen to Virginia, you jackass, you get so lucky to see her again. Listen to her as you should have all along. I'm not saying you're always right, and I know I tend to shut down, sometimes for years. That's not right. It's not the path that I want to walk anymore. It's lonely. We've always been stronger together. After all, we made our tribe together. We made packs together. God damn it. I love this man. I feel like this perfectly sums up who he is as a person. Caring and tough and thoughtful and soft when he needs to be, but but hardened like similarly when he needs to be. Um, and I think this also can be an example of if we if we believe that this is exactly who Darrow is, this is a great example of the difference between Darrow and the Reaper and his ability to compartmentalize those feelings and those personalities and allow the Reaper to be this incarnation of death and and ruthlessness that isn't necessarily representative of who Darrow as a character is. 
Yeah, which is why it's so deeply troubling, I think. And it's so easy to have been lost. And that, again, is another line that we've drawn, I think, pretty well over the course of our own show between like Darrow and the Reaper, right? And it's so warming again to see Darrow proper kind of back back in the focal lens in a big way. Right. I I do want to bring up this sort of very end of this chapter, because obviously we just spent a lot of that talking about Darrow and Darrow's speech and Darrow's feelings. But one of the unique things here is the way that Virginia makes Darrow feel and like the the feelings that Virginia has for Darrow. And so as they realize that this is the reality that must happen, you know, there's this ask of like, come to Mars. And she says to hold my hand as I die. That's what will happen, Darrow, my love. If you've ever trusted me, trust me now. The enemy wants you to return. They want us all in one place so they can exterminate us. If you come here, all you can do is wait for them to attack. If you're out there, you can work on the problem. Build strength. Then when the time is right, you can combine it with ours, with our ships inside the planetary shields. Mars will be a fortress wreathed with death and teeth. We will hold the planet. We will stave off defeat. I will not let Mars fall. But it's up to you to find us a path to victory. After a little bit of contemplation, they say, Darrow, this is the hardest thing I've ever had to do. The hardest thing. Every morning, you are my first thought. Maybe news has come as I slept. Maybe you've just landed in Aegea, but we need you out there, beyond their siege line, until you can return at the head of an armada. She is appealing to the Reaper. And Darrow has not inhabited that personality in quite some time. So like that, like that, that's where this sort of grinding happens in this. Yes, it's, it's a heavy topic to breach, but I think we're better for it to see Darrow responding to and believing in and accepting these terms. Because if we were still within the Reaper's perspective it wouldn't even be a question she wouldn't need to get out all of these reasonings yeah Yeah. so i i i appreciate all of this and uh, like ultimately it's the it's the right decision it's the logical answer it's the the way that the republic will properly overcome this hurdle but it still sucks and hurts. So, yeah, it's it's painful, and I think Virginia articulates it well that you know the needs of the many outweigh the needs of me. She's seen all these other people return. The only one that she really wants to see get off that ship is her husband. Yeah. All right. So with that, we move into chapter thirty-five, "The Winds of Duty," which is the first Darrow chapter in all of Part Two. So, and the last. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, starting off here, we get a quick recap on a lot of different details that have happened between the team. We start off with details that after the Day of Red Doves, Quicksilver had ran off Luna on his flagship. He had fled to the Narcissus Station at a military sensor, has appeared to have been mining all of these different things and accumulating resources based on the audits that they're able to do of the different mines and the different belts, it seems very clear that there are, that there is a fleet out there and that 
being equipped with the fastest ship, he should be able to approach, shouldn't be a problem, really puts the focus of the rest of the story here on Quicksilver and his secret army. army. And if they potentially fail in finding Quicksilver in that secret army, Daryl lets slip that maybe Athena and the daughters of Ares could help. Also, remember Lyria from the beginning of this part? <laughs> she gets brought up here a little bit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's been long enough that I hadn't actually considered what might happen or I haven't lately yeah. considered what might happen when Darrow and Lyria could meet. It's been like enough has happened that I didn't consider it to be a like hostile potential. Um, mm-hmm. But the fact that she technically kidnapped Pax would absolutely be of top concern for Darrow and would make this meeting <laughs> hostile and problematic. So like I, I am forgetting how isolated Darrow has been for such a long time and things that we have seen come to pass and become resolved and get smoothed over and like Leary has become an asset or has become an asset. An asset, an asset for sure. She's definitely an asset. But we've seen Lyria go from adversary to asset for the Republic and Darrow has been entirely removed to it. Ah, fucking shit. I can't talk today. He's been removed from the situation so far that all he'll be able to think about is his direct like her effects directly on him as a person, which would be her abduction of Hex. <laughs> right. Which would have been the defining characteristic, you know, a while ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally get that. There, there's a reference, of course, to the asteroid number. I, I question anything, but ending something in 1993 makes me think that something came out on January 21st, 1993. Not that I looked it up, but hmm curious how old is pierce brown pierce is 33 34 okay Okay, so a few years older than that would have been yeah he's 35 yeah now he's 35 but yeah okay 1988 so for me i'm staring at this and i'm like is there a sibling's birthday but i don't think that's right either because like there's got to be something though 93 there's got to be. Anyway, someone will figure that out and then inform us. Someone smarter than us. That'll be great. Yeah. So Cassius here is reinstated as the morning night of the Republic in the conversation that they share in the room. And I find that nights like this still to be such an odd concept for the budding Republic. It just feels out of place when so much of the rest of it we've tried to shed an abandon that has separated the colors from each other. But this one, this move feels odd. It does. Deserved, it, it's but not odd. it's not unique in that oddity either. Like there there are a few strange holdovers that we've talked about. And I can't mm-hmm. remember off the top of my head exactly what those were. Uh, but I remember like we've had conversations on this podcast about like weird things that the Republic has maintained. Um like the Imperator structure and you know, there's like a lot of military stuff. Yeah. 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 I do wonder, though, 
if that position has meaningfully changed, if it's a primarily symbolic position or if it's entirely different than the Olympic knight position that he held under Octavia or if it's similar. I don't know. I'm curious. I could see it being purely symbolic. And I mean, like, it. It could be like a cabinet appointment. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it could be something that's similar like that where it is symbolic with function or with limited function. But that that feels odd to me that it would be left up. They are they're a republic, so actually it's not that crazy, but it does feel just a little out of left field because I don't feel like and I would love to be corrected if I'm wrong, but I don't feel like we know anyone else of whom has been given a knight title inside no. of the republic up until this point. No, and you'd think they would have. Like you'd yeah, think we would have known. Callaway would have been given a knighthood. Mm-hmm. Or, or, yeah. Or Orion before everything happened. Yeah. Seems yeah. weird. Feels odd. Yeah. And may- maybe, it's, it's, maybe it's just Virginia vamping and, and giving an accolade to her ex. <laughs> well, I, mean, I said her ex, but yeah, no, that was well, a bit. Yes, but. To somebody who is, like it or not, his fate is tied to Darrow's. Sure. As well. And Darrow's fate, similarly, is tied to his. So, giving yeah. giving a position, giving a title to somebody, even if it's strictly symbolic, as a means of motivating him to make sure that Darrow survives and comes out of this alive is understandable totally logically that makes sense and it also it shows that the society has faith in him right or the republic excuse me has faith in cassius and so like there there are a couple of different reasons that this happens it's more the the fact that this is what's awarded right like right as opposed to i don't know any other number of things Mm -hmm. but yeah neither here nor there Right. I did want to bring up, there's a small note here instead of the conversation as well that happens with Severo talking um, to Virginia about the abomination and saying that one of the last things that he said was to say hi. <laughs> and yeah. just to not let us forget that that happened. This is also the, the first the- textual confirmation that the abomination survived the poisoning, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Which is, I mean, we assumed that he did. I think Virginia assumed that he did. But this is the first time we like actually textually know that he's still kicking. That motherfucker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's something to be read into as simple as it is. I mean, the response in this moment is Virginia stiffens right before she apologizes. And I think that that means that she... This could this could be pulled in so many different directions and we don't necessarily need to interrogate it. But I think we both came to terms with earlier that it seems like Virginia is communicating with the abomination. To get information out of the society Mm -hmm. because of his spy network. Yeah, right. With the syndicate. Right. So that feels correct. And this feels like that. That bit is tough to downplay on her part, and she also Mm -hmm. can't admit to it. At the same time in front of Severo, because if she tells him, could 
that information be held against anyone else at a different point? Like, is Severo a trustworthy asset? Well, it's not only that, it's how awkward would it be to say, oh, yeah, I've been actively talking to this person while they have been actively torturing you. Also true. Also true. Especially considering we had a similar confrontation with Cavax, right? Yeah. That leads me to the conclusion that the A-bomb is involved there. Yep. Same. But my heart breaks through Sev- for Severo throughout a lot of this section as he comes to realize that he isn't going home and his desire to see his boy, his child, it's just kind of sad. It's painful, especially considering we know where that boy ends up. The silence and pain continues as the galley is cleaned up after dinner and Daryl leaves a plate of ham outside of Severo's door. Yeah. Because he knows it's his favorite. I think Virginia ultimately responded to Severo correctly like Mm -hmm. i I think i think what she said was right but i would have been so curious to see how she could have like i i would have been very happy to be in virginia's perspective during this Mm. um because i i'd want to know if she was close to talking about ulysses at all Sure. I wonder, though, like despite despite everything, I I believe this is the right path and the right answers that Virginia put forward. But I, I wonder if Severo in the future will see this as a crossroads of betrayal or lying by, by omission. Ooh, yeah. When he learns if he learns about the fate of his child. Like, he doesn't even know the baby's name yet. He doesn't know whether or not it was a boy or a girl. Like, he just knows that he should have had a child by now. Yeah, right. And it does feel like this kept secret. Yeah, exactly. So I'm curious if he'll hold this as a, a moral crossroads. That makes sense. Yeah. It's it's definitely a tough, tough question to ask and to render to. I mean, mm-hmm. we'll see how it plays out over the coming weeks, right? Because it's not it's not playing out here. But Hopefully. it's it's sad, especially because he also can't see or talk to Victra because she's unavailable. She's behind yeah. the communication shield. So was she actually? I think so. OK. I don't think that this is a lie. I think that she was shipped off as quickly as possible. After all of that, Ore plays a lovely song that seems to summon ghosts for Darrow. Wine is poured, and Cassius provides a toast. They all return to their rooms. Darrow to Lysander is where he fixates on the family phrase on the ceiling, Lux ex tenebris. He peers out and sees Mars race by as we end his portion of part two. Rampart. So, with the wine commentary, I found it strange. Cheers, by the way. Oh, yeah. Wine's gone. But... Mm. I found it strange that there was the inclusion of Darrow subtly admonishing Cassius's drinking. I'm not sure exactly what to make of it at this point. If it's a breadcrumb pointing to a heavier problem with Cassius or just living within Darrow's eyes in the moment and like that's what happened. So that's in the book. Made the page. I, I don't know. But it felt pointed and it felt intentional to include it, and I'm not sure what to make of it. 
Well, Darrow stole his flask that he was or bottle that he was hiding under his seat, right? Like that happened back in part one. That's when they true. Reconvened. Right? Yeah. So he was I think he can he's like made the moments and like they've talked about it a little bit where he's like, you can't keep numbing yourself to reality. And that's not to say that like he can't drink so much as he's like, why are you drinking? Like, mm-hmm. what's what's the purpose here? Are you doing it just to remove yourself or? Yeah, which I think is why he questions, but doesn't, you know, yeah, it's just a look. It's like a raised eyebrow and. Causes Cassius to take the smallest portion. Like, yeah, it's 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 subtle and it's not that meaningful, but it is a continuation. It is a why that. are you drinking? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's meaningful. I think you've mm-hmm. read in properly. OK, I get that. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that bottle. In yeah, part one. Yeah, it's been a bit because we took a week off, too. So true. Yeah, that wraps up our little perspective here with Darrow. We move into our final chapter of the week. Chapter 36, the Lysander jurisdiction. I'm going to finish the rest of the beer here. Cheers. Woo. I'm sorry I had to burp. Oh, God. I don't know why that was such a problem, but it was. Ah, And we're done. All right. Boof. Well done. With that, we have a big chapter in front of us. What's up? I said well done. No, thank you. Thank you. It was the other half of that beer can because I had not touched it since I pounded half of it outside of the cheers for the wine. <laughs> so, uh, it's all gone now. Chapter 36, Lysander Jurisdiction. So Lysander is in a ton of pain and is awoken by his closest confidants, Pytha and Cicero, with Kyber not far behind, as they're trying to shake him awake to keep their burgeoning sect afloat. Roan waltzes in a little bit late and is angry over him being awoken so early from his induced coma to deal with the lament here. What do you think about everyone's sort of takes on waking him up, not waking him up in the time that's passed in the meanwhile? I think more than anything, Roan is right to be angry here. And frankly, I'm surprised that Lysander isn't more angry on Roan's behalf. And mm. like, I don't think he necessarily needs to be angry in an, like of his own accord, but he has th- this. The society is very structured. And Lysander has named Roan his ducks. And as ducks, he has the authority to make unilateral decisions when Lysander is incapacitated. Mm. Um, so the fact that he's been circumvented, I don't think they're making it as big of a deal as they should be Roan is but Lysander isn't and I, I don't know what that means for Lysander and Roan's relationship going forward I think it kind of points to Lysander not necessarily holding this duck's position in as high of esteem as it's meant to be held And it's going to potentially cause a rift between the two of them. You start to see that later on, Roan starts to kind of fall out of 
submission and and start acting a little bit more there could be other reasons for it but he starts acting a little bit more out of character going forward in this section yeah at the very least he seems to have like inklings of intent that feels much more protective of lysander and maybe not with his current code right like it's not like he's out of character feels like a stretch too far he is just so protective of lysander that does that make sense does that yes yes but there are interruptions there are outbursts there are there's a breakdown of roan's stability sure that is pointing to a problem i think i i can definitely understand that just wanted to clarify that i think that it's a little bit more character driven mm-hmm. i think totally like the place, i i, I right? agree i just i wonder given the frequency of it in this chapter if there's something mm-hmm. a little bit more got it because all of them individually are easily brushed aside, but taking a okay. step back and looking at all of his infractions, if you want to call them that, sure, makes for makes for some complicated analysis. Yeah, absolutely. There's also a big find here that it appears that this poisoning was Atalantia's doing. Cicero believes fully that this will lead to Lysander's easy ascension and the demise of Atalantia, despite everyone else's sort of, I I mean, in particular, Lysander is kind of like, you're happy that I'm sick. (laughs) Yeah. But what, what do you think? I think his elation makes sense given the, the context, but also I think it's naive. I think Atalantia is not somebody who plays within the sandbox that she's presented. Like, I I don't think she cares necessarily if she gets voted out by the 200. I think she will move to uh, gag and execute the 200 with whatever uh, forces she has at her hand. I, I think she, I think Cicero, and I think Cicero is living within the legality of the society, and Atalantia is technically outside of it, or is willing to operate outside of it. Yeah, I I think that that's a great call. There are moments in which I just have to point, nod, and salute and say, "Rafo, babe." Yep. No, I figured. <laughs> but yeah, it's a it's a great it's a great conversation about like what will happen with the 200 in the long run here. So we do find out that the rim is leaving and that leads us to a difficult position as Ilium guard as the Ilium guard has been destroyed by none other than Volsung Fa. He pose, poses a great risk to the survival of the rim in the long run, including Demeter's garter. I'm so excited to see Fa and his forces in person again. Um, I'm really glad Lysander's going to be going along for this ride so we don't just get, like, vague reports of what's going on on the rim with Fa and we can see it firsthand. That's going to be so dope. And I hope Fa eats Lysander's heart but doesn't tell him that he's worthy. (laughs) Oh, that'd that'd be brutal. In particular, is there anything that you're looking forward to the most with Fa? 
I think I want to have more conversation with him. Because sure. we, he has been such an enigma for a long time, but he has proven to be intelligent and able to make conversation and uh, explain his reasoning for the path that he's taking. So I think for somebody as philosophically minded as Lysander, it would be really, really cool to have a conversation between Lysander and Fa about conquest and about their motivations. Got it. Okay. So we move to Diomedes' pitch here. Come with me to the rim. Prove that you are what you mean and that gold can be united. That if you do, you have the rim behind you forever. What a commitment and a scary one at that. True unity. Something that Darrow in his current state couldn't hope to break. And something that he never believed that he could have broken without what happened originally back in the moments and events of Morningstar. Yeah, this is this is a situation where I get really caught up with the excitement of the perspective that I'm inhabiting. <laughs> Because I'm like, I'm here cheering on this union of Diomedes and Lysander thinking like, yeah, this is going to be great for both of them. Only to sort of pop my head out and realize like, this is a horrible, horrible prospect for Darrow and the Republic. Literally anyone else. Literally everybody else. (laughs) Like, it's... But I think that's the beauty of these perspectives in this story. I don't know. I, I, I love I love where it's going. And I wish I wasn't so flip-floppy about what I hope happens. <laughs> uh, but maybe that's why I love it so much. I don't know. It's hard to parse. Yeah. I, I think that's meant to be the intent, right? Like more than any of the other books, I think in the series, especially in the sequel series thus far, I have taken a moment and been like, fuck, I want Lysander to do well, but also I don't at all. <laughs> like, I don't like, I like the idea of rooting for this character because I inhabit the perspective and I understand what they're fighting for in the vague sense that they're fighting for something that they believe to be positive. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you you start to apply ideology and other things like that. And it's like, well, okay, well, I don't actually like what you're fighting for, but I understand. From there, we move to the larger Council of Core Gold, specifically including Apple and Julia, as they discuss the potential of this decision on Lysander's part. Apollonius thinks that the Volk are foolhardy, drawing comparisons between them and the Sicilian expedition of Alcibiades. Do you want to run that down for me a little bit? Maybe pronounce it again, because... I don't, I don't know. Alcibiades? <laughs> I think that's correct. Alcibiades. I'm going to get made fun of in the comments for this as I do everything. But basically, the Sicilian expedition is this sort of old story of Athens invading Sicily back in about 410 BC, I want to say. It was somewhere It was somewhere in the early, or is it late? We refer to BC. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like that's late for but what the what the fuck are dates anyway around 410 bc basically this expeditionary force went off and took off to invade sicily because there was this ongoing war between sicily sorry not sicily carth or carthany cartha fuck me i know i know these things it's the it was sparta 
it was the C group, the one with the C. And then I'm shitting myself. I, I actually didn't take notes on this because I was so confident that I knew it all. Yep. All right. Crossan has it. Sparta, Syracuse, and Corinth, which are the three. So the the three groups basically against Athens in particular, this was a big part of the Pelop. Pelop- this is what happens when you try Ragnar's Thirst is you can't say words like Peloponnesian, Peloponnesian, Peloponnesian. War, Peloponnesian. So during the Peloponnesian War, basically there was Ar- Archibaldus. Ar- oh, my God. I had the pronunciation and then I just said it in the worst way possible. Archie, which is how we're going to refer to him from now on, basically invaded Sicily as an attempt to get behind a lot of the other powers Syracuse was a big ally of Sicily, and it was basically this idea of being able to take this island and then have an advancing position that would be advantageous from them for, from the sea because they were otherwise locked on the other side of the conflict. So basically, they could surround the the sort of peninsula portion in which the rest of the three other armies occupied. It turned out to, of course, be foolhardy, which is what Apple is referencing here, as they did not successfully win so he he's he's drawing the comparison between this invasion in which they were repelled and as such apple thinks that even without their intervention they'll be repelled so he Hmm. has faith in the rim is basically the end all be all gotcha that makes sense sorry to make you stumble over all those words but i appreciate no it was mostly my own fault (laughs) because i didn't I didn't write it out ahead of time and then I didn't know that I was going to do this until I decided to do it. And and if I would have known, I would have wrote it all down. <laughs> so did you have any other thoughts on like Apple and his relation? Do you think that like, do you think that Apple's right or wrong? Do you? I, I always mean, think Apple's right. With the, okay, cool. All right. No, no further clarification required. Get I don't. I, what do you I, make after I all this? In him. <laughs> yeah. Always. For better or worse, I think he's right almost all the time. Ever the confidant. Love that. So what do you make after all of this at Lysander's decision to go out with them in this moment? I think it's 100% the right move for Lysander. It proves to the solar system at large, to the society, and it proves to himself what kind of man he can be what his word means for his act, like the, the, the connection between his action and his words, what he's willing to put at risk for the betterment of his allies. It solidifies his alliance with the rim in a way that was basically unthinkable before. Like the rim has always been this ally in name only basically, but he's positioned to make them a full fledged, allied force in a way that hasn't been the case for centuries like he he'd be stupid not to go through in the position like in the way that he is right now yeah he definitely he definitely would be it's it's more like just the the sort of state in which he's choosing to leave these people it's a question of like you know is leaving really going to bring them all into the fold would they not just come back if needed to conquer Mars or, you know, what's what's the end all be all. Yeah. And I, I think he's thinking a little bit longer term than that. Like maybe they come back to conquer Mars. 
but they wouldn't be reliable going forward beyond that. And th this is forging a more long-term alliance with the Rim. Okay, sounds good. I know we tackled Roan in some detail before, but I just want to re-pause and kind of cite where he's at right now. He feels silence, separating from this moment, and airs his concern. What do you think of the Ducks' council? Do you have any other thoughts that stretch beyond, you know, what you were immediately kind of thinking or what you already said? I mean, I think there's genuine tactical concern. Roan is the tactician on the, on the like, the tactical lieutenant if you mm -hmm. want to call it that, to Lysander. So like, makes sense for him to have tactic, tactical or tactician-based uh, concerns that he's bringing up. But there are a few just sort of composure slip-ups that make me wary of him. And it's obviously completely, completely plausible that... He's genuinely feeling protective of Lysander in the campaign, but I feel like there might be something else going on within Roan's head, and I'm not entirely prepared to take a stab at what that might be. But there, there's enough that it, it feels present, and Lysander is dismissing it as passion, but I, I feel like there could be something more going on. Okay, I dig it. We end this week with Helios's reaction to Lysander's decision as he begins to board the ship and they decide where he's going to go. What do you make of the Stoic Rimgold and whether or not he might accept this new sovereign? Beyond that, how about Diomedes being willing to sacrifice his mark for this man here? I mean, Helios, Helios is a tough nut to crack in general. Um, but I think the clarification later from Dido and Diomedes is pretty telling. Like he's he's worried that they won't be actually able to win without some help. So he's accepting of Lysander's offer. I don't think Helios comes across someone as or I don't think he comes across as somebody who's willing to accept help under specific terms and not follow through with reciprocity. Like I, I don't think that there's a situation where Lysander helps out the rim and Ly and Helios does not hail Lysander as his sovereign. Like I, I think he is in he's entrenched enough in the rim's old ways of honor that I don't think that there's a way that he could live with himself if he were to go back upon that agreement. I guess. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think it totally makes sense. I think that in particular, Helios is in a spot in which honorifics matter way more than mm -hmm. anything else does. So, exactly. yeah, I can totally see that. Connect with that. All right. Well, with that, any closing thoughts? Anything else that you, you have this week? I'm just, I'm excited to see more. I, I want to see. Lysander clash with Fa directly. I don't know if it'll happen this week, but I want it to happen so badly. <laughs> well, I can tell you, got a lot on the horizon. It's coming, coming right for you. Mm -hmm. So with that, next week, we will begin part three, Tempest, reading chapters 37 through 44. 
But that's where we're going to leave you for this week. Thank you, as always, to Tim and Andrew for helping us keep the show going. Check out the links in the show notes where you can find the schedule, the Patreon, the previous episodes, the websites, the social media accounts, everything all in one very easy, convenient location. Beyond that, make sure you leave us a five-star review. If you don't leave us a five-star review, not only will Erin come for you, but she will pound her hands on your chest and shout a primal roar as you're beheaded. That's a good death. That's, I don't think it's a good death. <laughs> Still a death. A good death is the way the obsidians died. <laughs> yeah, good point. Okay, fair enough. If you find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Reddit, you would find us by typing in the words words whiskey pod that is our username on those three platforms you can send us an email with either don't send us hate mail don't send us errors Please. that we made i mean i know that i pronounce things wrong we, we, we pronounce things wrong all the, all the time that's okay but send us an email at words and whiskey show at gmail.com join our patreon at patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey that is my primary form of social media like almost the like all of my interactions with social media is on our patreon discord and i love it it's great and if you want one of our t-shirts you can find it yet at t public follow the link in the show notes yes that's definitely the place to check us out other than that we will see you next week goodbye